Well, it's good to be with you this morning. I enjoy uh, meeting the church in different layers. I got to spend some time uh, yesterday, obviously, with several people who came to the conference, and then the night before with several of your leadership team, so it's wonderful to be with you. Uh, Matt mentioned about me not being gone very often from my own church. Uh, they would let me be gone a little more often. I just, I'm a homebody. I don't like to be away that much. And so uh, um, I just really appreciate you setting up this time. Uh, also, you know, if you're going to go somewhere, you want to go somewhere that means a lot to you, if you can. And so Colorado means the world to me. This is where my mom is from. This is where my mom lives over outside of Grand Junction. And uh, I've got cousins all up and down the East Slope, and then I've got them scattered all over the West Side. And uh, so this is a very important place. Now, I visited the East Side Church uh, in 1981. Uh, my wife and I were students at Harding University, and their uh, acapella chorus was coming through here to sing. And I was on the way to see Grammar. And so I got directions uh, to come to your place at the other building, and I came over and they sang, and it was beautiful, and the hospitality was great. And I went on uh, to see my grandmother for spring break. And uh, so it's good to be here with you. Okay, so I want to give you a couple of thoughts about how we're going to do this this morning, okay? This is going to be a Bible study, and you're going to just have to give your absolute best mental and emotional effort to this thing, because it's, uh, it's one of those foundational parts of how we understand our relationship with God, and it's, uh, it's just going to take a little bit of, of extra effort from our hearts and our minds for this to really sink in. I grew up in construction. We put water lines and sewer lines in the ground. When we left the job site, all you could see was streets and curves and pipes sticking up out of the ground. But the contractors were happy if all the pipes were in the right place, right? And uh, so my whole life, I spent learning how to think foundationally. The things have to go in right on the base level, or it's hard to build anything that's worthwhile above that. So we're going to do some foundational work today, okay? So first of all, uh, the title I've given, this is Love from Above, and I want you to think about how, about how photoshopping works, right? Uh, I heard a description, a guy was talking to tech guy, I was talking about the modern telephone, and he said, you understand that what a modern telephone is, is it's a camera with a communication device wrapped around it. We tell our stories in pictures, that's what it is, it's a camera. So the most important technological advances for this thing I'm holding in my hand is the camera and how you upload it to your world. So one of the things that we've noticed is, is that with the advancement of that comes the advancement of Photoshop. People want to know, how do I make my pictures look better than I look, <laughs> right? I'm going to post something online. And so every now and then you'll see something kind of funny. You will see a picture and you'll see someone's arm, but they've cut that person out of the picture. So you're like, is that a relative no one likes? I mean, who is that person, right? Former girlfriend, who knows who it is, you know? So we do a lot of Photoshopping. You can make Photoshop just mean about anything. But here's one of the things I've learned about this is that Photoshopping is a way to tell some of the truth. It's a way to tell some of the truth. You say, well, why don't you say it's a way to lie? Well, it's a way to do that too. But I don't think that's what we're trying to do. I think what we're trying to do is to tell some of the truth. And so when, you, when people post things on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever, most of the time we're posting the highlight reel. Now, if there's a tragedy, where we want support, then we'll post something like that. But if it's family vacation or stuff, uh, we have five adult children, two grandchildren, we're on the way. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of that vacation I am posting. You know, we're driving through, you know, I, I think it was uh, uh, South Dakota one time. 
and uh, driving through South Dakota. We stopped at Wall Drug. Any of you have driven that, you know where we stopped, right? <laughs> Bought the kids some dinosaurs, uh, toys. We get the van, we're driving along, and they're fighting over them. I mean, they're going crazy. 10 minutes ago, they didn't have it, right? Now it's a prized possession of Pineapple, right? So I'm a young father, brilliant, a brilliant young father. I make the uh, announcement that if they keep fighting, I'm gonna throw them out the window. My wife looks at me and says, why do you say things like that? Why do you even say things like that? Well, they keep fighting, so what do I do? I roll down the window and I throw the dinosaurs out the window. And then my wife looks at me and says, why do you buy things and then say silly things and then throw them out on the blacktop? You know, of course, four kids looking out the back window crying, so this is a great vacation, right? So you don't actually post that on Facebook. What you post is, you know, we you know, finally get over to Mount Rushmore and it was great, right? So this is how Photoshopping functions. So this is my family. Uh, this is at uh, one of our son's weddings. So right there in the middle, uh, Jerome and his wife, uh, Whitney, they got married September 29th. And uh, so we have four sons and a daughter. That's one of my granddaughters, of course, that's my wife. And uh, when you look at this picture here and you see our children, then you start thinking to yourself, well, I wonder what it is about them. Well, what could you learn? Well, they've got four sons. Uh, and a daughter. We could learn that. And then you can figure out, well, one of our sons uh, is adopted and one of our sons isn't wrapped in the same color skin as the rest of our family. You can figure out that. But there's a lot more to that story that the only way you could ever know is if I told you. The only way you'd know is if I told you. So I got a question for you. What if God had photoshopped his family in Scripture? And all he wanted to hit was the high points. So the Bible would be a pamphlet. <laughs> right? You know, because think about VBS, right? In VBS, we tell the story of David and Goliath. In counseling sessions where marriages are struggling, we tell the story of David and Bathsheba, and we, get, we dig into it, right? <laughs> right? Have you ever thought about if, if, if you were on, like let's say the elders came to you and they said, listen, we're going to put together this new greeting team and we want you to join the greeting team. And you're going to meet people at the door on Sunday mornings and you're going to help them become members of our church. And you're like, all right, this is going to be awesome, man. So we set up a booth out front. Welcome, everybody. We got donuts. We got everything ready. We got coffee. It's ready to go. First family walks in. This lady walks in, and you're all excited. You're ready to rock and roll. She walks up. It looks like, at first, you can't tell. You don't want to say she's a little older, you know, but uh, she walks in. Her husband's parking the car, and she's got a teenager and a toddler. So you're thinking, okay, so we've got someone for youth ministry. We've got someone for children's ministry. I'm ready for this. How are you doing? What's your name? My name's Sarah. Uh, great. What are the kids' names? Ishmael and Isaac. Oh, wow. You know, okay, that's, that's cool. You know, the guy walks in. The father, well, you know, he's kind of an older-looking guy, right? You know, he comes in. And then this other lady walks up. And, you know, you're observant. That's why the elders pick you. And you notice that the older kid kind of favors the lady that just walked up a little more than the mom. And so you're like, okay, you know, sign them up, right? So that you call her that way because you follow up because you're on the green team, right? Then you follow up, hey, let's go to lunch with me. So you're there with Sarah, hey, hi, how you doing? What was your husband's name again? Abraham, oh, oh yeah, that's great, you know. How the boys like Sunday school? Oh, they fit in pretty well. The youth ministry is really great, okay, good. Who was the lady with you? <laughs> well, that's a story. Her name is Hagar. Oh, is, like, is she a sister? Is she a... <laughs> so you get back to lunch, 
And you call one of the elders and you're like, um, I'm not sure I'd really cut out for this. I don't think, right? No, 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 come on, come on, come on. So the next Sunday, right, you're ready to go. You come in, you're ready to go again. Lady walks in. And uh, she's a young mom. She's got these little twins, you know. So now you're excited about it. What's your name? Tamar. You know, great. You know, where's your husband? Parking a car. Husband walks in. Look, but you think it's her dad, right? So you make a mistake. Oh, you know, a lot of marriages, you know, a lot of years in between the husband and wife, you know. Hey, how you doing? What's your name? Judah. Good, good, good. Well, let's get the kids settled in, right? So you decide to take her to lunch. You sit down with Tamar. So how did you and Judah meet? <laughs> Do you really want to know? <laughs> well, see, I was married to his first oldest boys, and then they both died. He blamed me for their death, and then he wouldn't let me marry his next son, but then he was looking for a prostitute, and I was dressed like one we looked up, and we got these kids. You, that's in the Bible. Sometimes people don't like it when I'm preaching, and I tell something that's in the Bible. I've had people criticize me for that. You shouldn't tell such awful things from the pulpit that you read in the Bible. <laughs> you get my point? God did not Photoshop his family. It could just keep going, couldn't it? We could go to the story of David. Moses! How about Esther? So Esther comes in, you know, walks in, how you doing, what's your name, Esther? Oh, good, good, good. Uh, well, Esther, you know, glad to have you today. Uh, is, uh, uh, is your family with you? You know, I know, you know, my husband isn't really in his you know. Okay, well, I'd love to know more about him. You know, uh, how long have you been married? Well, you were kind of married. It's, it's a different arrangement. Like, I'm part of a hero. That's why we only tell part of the story of Esther and BBS. We love that for such a time as this. We don't like the aftermath. And these are real stories of God's people. So why, why don't we tell our full story? And why is God so comfortable telling his? You know, one of the things that's a very painful thing that I want you to think about is, if you thought about God as a family, think about the Garden of Eden. God's a perfect father. He's got these two kids, boy and girl. looks like a perfect family. He really is a perfect dad. He never makes a mistake. He's never missed a game. You know, he's always there because he's omnipresent. That's an advantage, right? He's always right. He's omniscient. He's never wrong. That's an advantage. He actually does know what his kids are thinking, right? You know? And he's a perfect dad, but his kids still go off the rails. You know, sometimes we think if we were better parents, that our kids wouldn't struggle. I guess God would say, I don't know, maybe you're a better parent than I was, I don't know. Then God had these two grandsons. Do you remember their names? Amen. So I wonder what kind of conversation that would be when you talk to him and says, hey, listen, I, I heard the news. Oldest grandson killed his brother. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I tried to intervene. I tried to talk him out of it, but he just he just lost his way. Well, where is he now? Well, you know, he and I were talking. The consequences are so heavy. He just doesn't think he can survive them. Well, what are you going to do? I shared an idea for him. This is in your Bible, and I know you know it. How many of you went to the vacation Bible school as a child? Come on, it's okay, right? You're going to be proud of that. It's Sunday school, right? Some of you are Bible Bowl champions, see? You know these things. Why are we uncomfortable telling them? And God isn't uncomfortable telling them. See, this might be why Jesus said, you'll have to go learn 
what this means that I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. You, you, you won't just get it. You'll have to actually learn it. It's something that's beyond you. You'll have to go to the Jesus school where there's a course on why mercy is more important to him than sacrifice, even though he came up with both of them, that he favors mercy above sacrifice. And he says, you know, it's not going to come natural to you because when you're up against it, you feel the pressure of your family struggling or your kids going awry or your parents going off the rails or your dad makes a mistake, your mom makes a mistake, and it's all kind of a really a, a big struggle. He says, you got to bear in mind, you'll probably lean into sacrifice. You'll probably lean into wanting to tell Cain, well, you, you made your bed, man. you got to sleep in it, buddy. You dug your own grave, boy. I tried to save you from what you, what, what you did, and you're living out your consequences. So, so kind of tough luck. But God says, you know what? When he cried out to me, you realize he's my grandson. I mean, I, I just had to realize that boy needed me still. Does this sound familiar to any of you? A friend that did the unthinkable, but still needs you, a family member. It's not easy, is it? We can imagine life going one way, but we're living life going the other. And so Jesus says, here's something you might need to learn. So how do we love mercy and share it with the world? I want us to start here in Hebrews chapter 9, and here's a couple ways you can do this. One of them, uh, you got your Bible, open your Bible and follow along in the text, okay? Another way you can do it is just take pictures of the screen if you want to when we, when we put the scriptures up. Another thing I can do is I can email it uh, to Matt or someone and you can get the PowerPoint later. So you do it the way that works for you. Not the way that works for me, you do it the way that works for you so that we can get this together. But it is a Bible study, so you really have, we're really going to have to work at this. Ready? So now the first covenant had regulations for worship, and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room with a lampstand and a table with a consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. But then behind the second curtain was a room, and that room was called the most holy place. So what's another way we, we talk about the, the holy of, right, holy bowls. Uh, now it had what in it? It had the golden altar of incense. It had the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This was the ark that had three things in it, the gold jar of man that represented God's sustenance in the wilderness, Aaron's rod, a staff that invited, and that represented God's guidance in the wilderness, and then the stone tablets of the covenant, which of course represent his covenant. Now above the ark were this cherubim, you know, kind of, I know this is loose, but think angel style, kind of a figure, like an angel figure, cherubim above the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. He said, now we, we actually can't discuss these things in detail now. So Indiana Jones, right? You guys get the general picture, right? Okay. This is an illustration, not for then, but for now. It's an illustration for right now. And what, why? Because it indicates that the gifts and sacrifices that were offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food, drink, various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order, when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here. He went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things under that old covenant to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ didn't enter a sanctuary, made it human hands. That was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. And what's he doing right now for you? What's he doing right now this morning? He is appearing in heaven for you right now. So, recap. The tabernacle pointed to Jesus. Jesus is now the atoning sacrifice. So that's the recap. All right? So we go to 1 John 1, 2, 1 and 2, and this is important. My dear children, I write these things to you so that you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And what is he? He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. So if you take this for a few moments, this atoning sacrifice idea, there's a Greek word, helistherion, and what this word means is that someone is in the place of someone else, and whatever they offer settles whatever was necessary. So if you had some kind of a debt, it settles that debt. If you were supposed to perform something and you failed to do it, it covers that failure on your part, and Jesus is that atoning sacrifice. So why don't we go back to the original story in Exodus? So God says, here's what you need to do. You need to have them make this ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, cubit and a half wide, cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Uh, make an atonement cover. Now, what do we call that atonement cover? What's that atonement cover called? It's called a mercy seat. It's called the mercy seat. So I want you to lodge that in your mind. That this cover of the atonement, the, the ark, is called the mercy seat. So make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, cubit and a half wide. Make two cherubim of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub at one end, second cherub at the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant of law that I'll give you. There, circle this in your mind or in your text, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant of law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Now I want you to look at that phrase that starts with there above. How many of you have called your spouse, called your parents, called your child, and said, where are my blank keys, credit card, registration form, where are they? And you start to give instructions. Okay, go to the second drawer in the kitchen. Underneath the this, look for this, because we remember where it is. Where is it? Okay, go to the car, get into the glove box, underneath the directions for the car, how do my car runs, look over there. We know how to do this. Go to the toolbox, third door down on the right, look back in the back. So what he says is here, geographically, there, above the cover, between the angel's wings, over the Ark of the Covenant, I will meet with you. So if somebody says, hey, uh, Brooke, where, where, do you, where do you meet with God? <clears throat> okay, let me think. Uh, it's an exodus. You go above the ark, between the angel's wings, over the ark of the covenant. That's where you find That's what the Bible says. <laughs> Leviticus 16, 13, giving instructions about this, he says, he is to put incense on the fire before the Lord. And the smoke of the incense will actually conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant so that you won't what? You won't die. 
You don't just wander into the Holy of Holies, by the way. And think, in case you missed it, if you meet God on human terms, only one of you walks away, and it isn't you. That's what the last phrase there means. Right? Right? Leviticus 16, 16. In this way, God, he, will make atonement for the most, or the priest, I'm sorry, the priest will make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness and the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. Now, he used to do the same thing for this tent of meeting the tabernacle. And where's the tent, where's the tabernacle located? What's, what's the Bible say? Where's the tab tabernacle located? What's the Bible say? Right in front of you. Where is the tabernacle located? Say that again. In the midst of their uncleanness. So where could have God pitched his tent? He could have put it up on a mountain. He could have put it outside the camp. Where does he put it? Yeah, but this is where God dwells. So if God is dwelling in his tent, and he put his tent in the midst of the uncleanness of his people, what in the world is God up to? What is he doing? I mean, how many of you would think to yourself, hey, honey, you know, I think we got to build a new house. Let's find the most unclean part of town and let's build it there. What are most people thinking? Get as far away from that as, what is God doing? Get as close to it as possible. Are, you, are we looking at this? Where did, it's God's tent. It's not like God came to the Israelites and said, hey man, you guys got a, you got a place I can stay for a few nights? Yeah, we've got an empty tent over here, I think in row 18. God is putting his own tent where God wants it, and it is symbolic. So God places himself in the middle of uncleanness. Let me ask you this. You got any uncleanness going on in your life? You got any unclean thoughts? Unclean words? When's the last time you sinned? Some of you are like, uh -huh. no, you don't have to think that long. You got any uncleanness? You got you know anybody that doesn't think they're worthy of God? Have you ever felt like you couldn't take the Lord itself on a Sunday morning because of how you behave Saturday night? Hey, maybe you're all better Christians than we are in Atlanta. So my guess is that some of you are hurting this morning about the uncleanness of your life or someone you love. If God was going to come to your exact situation, where would he put himself? In the midst of your uncleanness. It's good to study the Bible, wouldn't you agree? Because sometimes we make up stories about God that are different than the one he tells about himself. Hmm. In case you missed it, God is prepared for your sin and he'll get into it and help you shovel it. Number 789, when Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice from where? Where was he going to meet him? You remember the directions? Let's see if it matches up. Heard the voice speaking to him from where? Between the two cherubim, above the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant of Law, in this way the Lord spoke to him. It seems consistent with Exodus 25, right? So where does God meet? Could we point to it? Does he meet down where the law is? No, he meets above the ark, between 
the cherub. The mercy seat is above, the law is below. And where does God meet with that? That we've studied so far. At the mercy seat. Hmm. Any of you see this show, Frazier? Any of you remember this show? It was brilliant. Show ran for 11 seasons, won over 30 Emmys. It's amazing. It's crazy. Brilliant show. And uh, it's a story about this uh, psychiatrist kind of loses his way, joins his brother out in Seattle, and his dad moves in. I did some research on this show. They spent a half a million dollars on the furniture for the set. But they wanted to add a chair for Martin. And that's the chair right there, that gorgeous recliner. Well, that recliner becomes a central part of the story of the show. But people hate it. So halfway through the episodes of this, of this several seasons, 11 seasons, they have an episode where they actually get into a fight about the chair and throw it out the window of this, the, the building they're in, and it crashes in the street below. Fan reaction was so horrible that they actually had to bring the chair back. So they got another one, and notice they even put duct tape on, on the chair to make it look like they had salvaged the old one. That's how central to the show this was. Uh, how many of you uh, know someone that had a favorite chair? Yeah, who was it? You have a favorite chair. Your dad. What did your dad chair with? Yeah, my dad was a green, like, vinyl, reclining in the upper a while ago. Someone else? A dog hide. Yes, yes. Anyone else's favorite chair? My grandpa's. Your grandpa's favorite chair. I could have guessed that. Well, people have favorite chairs, don't they? Here's what's fascinating. When they brought this chair in, they had a studio uh, extra, you know, an actor that served as the furniture delivery guy, and he wheeled the chair in in episode one. They went and got that exact same guy 11 seasons later, brought him back, and he's the guy that peeled it out. That's, that's when they closed off the show. When the actor John Mahoney died a year and two months ago, this is how they posted it on the internet. That's how much of that. I think it's important for us to realize that God has a favorite chair. And it's not called a judgment seat. It's not called a bench of law. He was very careful and specific about where he would meet with us. It's called a mercy seat. You say, well, I'm glad uh, that God thought of that in the Old Testament. Jesus' brother, James, writes about this. He says, brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister, surprisingly, you may not have expected this, judges or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. He says, so here's the thing. If you decide to speak against a brother or sister, what may surprise you is that in doing that, you're actually speaking against God's law. I bet you didn't anticipate that. I bet you thought when you were just slandering a brother or sister or putting them down or, oh, can you believe she did that? I know. I know. Why does she come to church anymore? I just don't know why she didn't come to church anymore. My goodness gracious, she's a this one. Well, when you were talking about her, what you didn't realize is that you were insulting God's law. You just didn't know it because we weren't familiar with James 4.11. We don't have to know Greek to get this, do we? How many of you think that's pretty straightforward? Well, James isn't done. He just keeps writing. When you judge the law, you're actually 
not keeping it, but you're sending the judgment on. Now that's fascinating because it starts out that we're downgrading one of our brothers or sisters. Turns out they're downgrading the law, so then we're judging the law and we end up not keeping it. Here's what I also find fascinating. Sometimes when we're judging other people, we think it makes us more righteous. Boy, this turns out on its end, doesn't it? We think that by judging them and pointing out their sin, how many of you heard this phrase? You know, well, you know, what you got to do is just love the sinner and hate the sinner. Well, we have a saying at home, love the sinner and hate your own sin. We agree. Love the sinner and hate your own sin. Because when you start hating your own sin, fascinating love, other people look better when you hate your own sin. So when you downgrade a brother or sister and you slander them, you're downgrading and slandering God's law. When you're slandering God's law, you're not keeping it, but you're actually sitting in judgment on it. So this is fascinating. God calls us to a mercy seat. We get stuck down here wrong. Here's what James says. There's only one law, lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? That's a good question. Herman Melville, the author of uh, Moby Dick, the movie's famous uh, book, he said, heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike. I think that's funny. You only have two categories. You're the Presbyterian or you're pagan, right? He says, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. How many of you notice the cracks in someone else's head just a little bit more than the ones in your own, right? It's easier, right? You do realize that it's easier for other people to see our sin sometimes than ourselves. James says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Can you say this out loud together with me? Mercy triumphs over judgment. How many of you are familiar with this text before this morning? Does it take on a little more meaning when we go back and we look at the meaning of the mercy seat? That God meets us above the law at the mercy seat and mercy triumphs over judgment. Did God forget he has a law? Did he forget what's down there in the ark? Or does he just realize that no one can be right with me meeting me at the law. James is the one that says, you know, if you do realize if you break one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. So you really just don't have a shot at getting to God with the law. So how do we get to God? The mercy. And who is the mercy? Jesus Christ. He is the atoning. So how does this start to shift our thinking? Well, how many of you have someone that kind of grates on your nerves because of the way they behave? Anyone? Grates on your nerves because of how they behave. So could it be a relative? Is that possible? This is the Southeastern Conference, the SEC. They live under an interesting false impression 
that uh, all of their sports teams are the greatest in the history of the entire world. <laughs> the best ever in the history of anything, of anybody, anywhere, right? So I remember a fascinating thing. How many of you remember when Texas A&M joined the SEC a few years ago, right? Texas A&M joins. It's their first year of the season. There's a running back for Texas A&M. He takes off. He's running up the sideline. He's fine. He's going to score. And the announcer says, look at that SEC speed. Well, he's been in the SEC for about three months. My guess is, is he picked up that speed before 90 days ago. <laughs> but now that he's in the SEC, look at that SEC speed, right? Well, I've lived a few places. So I grew up in Oregon. And so you got the Pac-12 out there, and then we lived up in Ohio and Indiana, right? So you got the Big 12, which was the Big 10, right? You got that going on, right? So now I'm down in the SEC, and lo and behold, there are athletes everywhere. It's a fun. <laughs> but then I'll hear people say about their fans, we have the absolute best fans everywhere. And it's not just that they're like good, like people cheering. They're godly. <laughs> Our fans pride. Yeah, I know what they're praying for, dear God. If it be in thy will, help the righteous team win today, and we all know which one that is. It's right. This is how we think. Because we have a tendency to generate our ideas of identity and righteousness based on the people that think like we think, root for who we root for, choose what we choose, vote how we vote. All of those are the best people. And if everyone else could get converted to Jesus, they would understand that our way of life is better than everyone else's. Because now what we're doing is we're overlaying Jesus on all the decisions we make about everything else. So some years ago, uh, Oregon Ducks, I'm from Oregon, said that was in a national championship football against Auburn. And so I live in Auburn country, but I'm from Oregon country, right? So some of our fans who went to the game were on the plane and they said this. You know, uh, we met some of your Oregon fans and they were really nice. Well, what do you think they were going to be? Right? Quack. Sorry, I did that. <laughs> right. But what do you think they were going to be? Right? So listen to this. If you live down in the South, you all know what they did out there in Colorado. They legalized that marijuana. That's what they did out there. <laughs> right? So you see how people think, right? I went to Georgia. Where are you from, Oregon? Ah, from the left coast. The what? <laughs> you ever been out there? Don't need to. Don't tend to. You see, this is how we think. This is how we process life. And because of that, we're sitting in judgment on God's law, and we didn't know it. We thought. We thought. We were being righteous by keeping his law. And inadvertently, we ended up judging his law and inadvertently not keeping it. It's what Jesus wants us to learn. That's why he said, you're going to have to learn what it means that I desire mercy rather than sacrifice because it's just not going to come natural to you. Uh, one of our largest ministries at home is a recovery ministry. We've been in this world 20 years. And several hundred of our members have been through this program. Some of our leaders, one of our men, two of our ministers. And most of our folks in recovery, most of them have, you know, some kind of criminal record because a lot of times when people are lost in the world of addiction and they 
misbehaving and get trouble from all. So someone mentioned this, someone kind of finally dawned on them that we had felons in our church. And I said to them, you do realize that if a doctor writes his own prescription, it's a felony. I mean, you get that, right? And their eyes kind of bugged out for them. Because they had never put the idea of someone as good as a doctor having a criminal record, but they could see someone as bad as, and you, you name the group, them druggies who have a criminal record. So at one of our big events, there's about 1,200 people from this one recovery program, and it's a black tie event. Most of the people in, in that program have been doctors and lawyers and very high-functioning addicts. So this guy gets up to speak. He's a doctor. And uh, uh, the doctors in the room will appreciate the, the irony of how he started this. He got up in front of this room of 1,200 people, and he said, I am not a junkie like you. I thought to myself, does he know who he's talking to? A room full of recovering addicts. He said, every single drug I've ever taken, I had a prescription for it, and I wrote it myself. <laughs> and that's how I lost my license and my life. And then he went into this beautiful speech about his life and we started this program, it wasn't long into the program, that the sound system for the church got sold. It's got sold, you know, so someone could buy drugs. We bought a replacement one, and uh, very quickly, that, that one we didn't get it out of the box. They were stolen that quickly. So the third one, we cabled it down, we had to learn, right? We cabled the third one down, so they stole the church pickup. Well, we didn't like the pickup anyway, and so not long after that, uh, a guy named Jared stole the church pickup. So, uh, you guys remember the white uh, church band that has the church Christ on the side? Gerald steals the band, goes to Jacksonville, Florida, uh, stocks up on cocaine, and is selling cocaine out of our church band <laughs> up and down I-95 for two weeks. For two weeks. So I'm trying to imagine, you know, he's on his cell phone, so he's like, hey dude, have you got the stuff? Absolutely, man. Where are you? I'm under arrest here about I-95. How do we find it? You know, I'm in a big white band that says North Atlanta Church of Christ on the side, right? And then the guy's like, that's a perfect cover, dude! No, who thought of that, right? <laughs> he drives into New York City September 11, 2001, sees the second plane at the World Trade Center. Calls home and said, I'm coming home. He came home. Of course, he broke his probation. He goes back to jail. We spend the next three years Spent a time with him while he's in jail. The first Sunday he was back, he came in the back and I said to the ushers, you make sure that Gerald serves communion to the church today. Because we got to send a clear message that mercy triumphs over judgment. One of our older members said it blown up his marriage. He was very, very well known in our community. Blew up his marriage. Many generations in the church, shame covered over the top of him. He'd been out of church for about 12 years. Came to visit our church, walked up, introduced himself to me. I knew who he was. He said, I'm going to try to start coming to church again. I said, well, good. I said, why don't we get lunch together? So we went to this restaurant, seated so 52, sat down together. He said, my plan is that I'm just going to come in, and I'm just going to sit in the back. And I said, well, I was afraid of that. So I said, I need you not going to work out. This is a general What do you mean? 
I said, well, the idea that you're going to come and sit in the back, that won't work out. So the answer is no. I said, now, if you need to go to the restroom or something like that, and you got a health problem, I don't know about it, then tell me. But if you're sitting in the back because you're ashamed of your sin, the answer is no, and you're not going to work out here. Because the last thing we need is anyone sitting on the back row because they're a sinner. We start something like that, and we're going to lose the gospel altogether. So I said, I'll call you out every time you do it. And I'm serious. We're not happy. If you come to our church today, you pick the road right dead center in the middle. I mean, you count from the back and you count from the front. <laughs> and you sit right in the middle for the last 12 years. But you understand, mercy had to triumph on the judgment. You get what we're saying? This is essential to understanding love first. Because you see, in God's mind, you are worth so much that he'll meet you at the mercy seat and help you navigate where you didn't, you didn't keep the law. He knows better what to do with your sin than you do. We're going to have to learn how to trust him and meet him at the mercy seat because your father has a favorite chair and it's called the mercy seat. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your love, your kindness, your generosity to us. Thank you for the mercy seat. Father, help us to learn what it means that you chose to meet us at the mercy seat. And then, Father, help us to live into that so that others can experience your mercy through us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.